Well, good morning, and we want to welcome you to our time of worship. And though we are somewhat separated physically, it is our hope that our God unites us spiritually as we gather around the authority and the teaching of his word this morning. I'm going to begin with a word of prayer, and then I will invite you to join me in your Bibles in Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Let's begin by asking God's blessing on what takes place here this morning. Our great God in heaven, we do thank you for the redemption that we find in Christ Jesus. And as we celebrated last week, the empty tomb, the resurrection of our Savior, we begin this week recognizing that because of Christ, we are alive to you. Our sins have been forgiven. And I trust that as a people of faith, we can gather around the testimony of your word we can learn together, we can grow together, we can be challenged in our walk of faith together. Our increase can be experienced in love, even though we are not physically together. And so, Father, we ask for your blessing, we ask for your divine touch on your congregation this morning. And I pray that you will give to us a sensitivity to the teaching of your word, the instruction of our God from the written word, and that you would grant me the ability to speak well on it this morning. For your glory and for the sanctification of your church, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I think probably most of us understand that what has dominated our culture for many weeks now, and certainly if you've watched the news at all, what has dominated the news coverage is this virus that has put a stop to our world for all practical purposes, it certainly has changed our church lives dramatically. And for those of us that are mindful of the spreading of germs, I just saw a couple of days ago that the main cause of the virus or the main spread of the virus is the coughing and sneezing that goes on. And I happen to be a habitual sneezer, so you can imagine the drama that takes place when you go into the department store and you lose control of yourself, and you sneeze. We're all mindful of this new virus and the threat that it is to our culture. And again, this has been what we've been seeing on the news predominantly. And we're watching as people are pointing the fingers at one another, looking for the cause, or how could this have been prevented, or how could we have done things differently, and who's responsible for the spread of it, and who's responsible for even the lives that are being expired because of this virus. And even as you watch the conservative news, as I do sometimes, I realize they're not afraid to mention God, even though they take a very broad view of God, a broad view of religious beliefs. They do so oftentimes in disregard to biblical truth. The secular news, on the other hand, has little interest in God other than to express a general unbelief in him or to question those who do believe in God. Now, news sources may keep us informed on the latest progress or decline of the virus and the government regulations that affect our daily lives, but there is little that they can do to bring us hope and comfort at a time when our lives and even our health is at stake or sometimes even our finances are threatened. And as believers, we look at the world scene around us and we cannot help but see the providence of God at work. We may not be able to explain God and his 
his actions all the time, but it is not at all difficult for us to know that God is very present and moving in our world today. And because of this pandemic and because of the drama of it, I'm going to take a pause from our study in the Gospel of John, and I'm going to turn this week and next Lord's Day to the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah and chapter 45. And as some of you know, this passage will reinforce what you already believe about the Lord God. But for others, it may secure in your minds the certainty of God's presence that you're not going to get from the world around you. And should we be in a position to address the concerns or the fears or the anxieties of the unsaved world or our unsaved acquaintances, we must understand that God's word has answers for us that deals with the turmoil that is in our world. And these answers may not satisfy the world that we have conversations with. In fact, it may irritate them all the more. But as I first began hearing about the extent of the virus in our world a couple of months ago, it drew me to this passage in Isaiah chapter 45. And I would like to offer this part of God's word as a reminder to us as a church, as believers today, that God remains with his people. He is sovereign over his universe. He is sovereign over his church. And there is no other. He alone is God. God is our hope. He is our present hope. He is our hope of salvation, and he is our future hope. And it is those three areas of God's sovereignty that I believe Isaiah 45 addresses. So beginning with this morning, we're going to be looking at the sovereignty of God, the throne of God. And I invite you to join me in Isaiah chapter 44. I'm going to pick up in verse 24 of chapter 44, and three, read into chapter 45 and verse 14. So follow along. I begin at Isaiah 44 and verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, and the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built. And I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depths of the sea, be dried up and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of Jacob, my servant, 
and Israel, my chosen one. I have also called you by your name and have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Drip down, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, who are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker. Ask me about the things to come concerning my sons, and you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their hosts. I have aroused him in righteousness, and I will make all his ways smooth. He will build my city and will let my exiles go free without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, and the Sabaeans, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you, and they will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you, and there is none else, no other God. Our times of turmoil, in fact, our world that is in turmoil, as the Christian looks out at what is taking place, these times should remind us, first and foremost, that God's throne is sovereign. So we're going to begin here in the first 13 verses of Isaiah chapter 45, where God's sovereignty, his throne of rulership is declared. And this is where our study begins. Isaiah gave this prophecy to Israel some 160 years before the words were fulfilled by God. And you can see at the end of chapter 44, and here in verse 1 of chapter 45, that man is... There's a man here named Cyrus that comes to our attention. And God uses this man, Cyrus, as a key player for his purposes in bringing Israel back home, setting his people free. Cyrus was the king of Persia. And upon marrying the daughter of the Medes, of the king of the Medes, he united these two kingdoms that we refer to as the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus was the king that God placed over the Medes and the Persians. And Cyrus becomes a leading player in the prophecy of Isaiah 45, though it is clear that God dominates the account of this Persian nation. This comes to light in the very first verse where we read, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus the anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. This passage is about God. It is about what God will do. 
And though Cyrus is a key player in God's plan, it is God himself who takes the right hand of Cyrus and enables him to accomplish God's plan for Israel. Now, at first glance, as you look at the first five verses, it seems as though God is speaking directly to Cyrus. But God is actually speaking to Israel here through the prophet Isaiah. It is worded in this way so that Israel would know what God was intending to prophetically do through this man Cyrus as God's chosen instrument. And therefore, this prophecy is giving to Israel a front row seat in what God was about to do on Israel's behalf. Now, Israel had been under Babylonian captivity, and many of the Israelites were taken back to Babylon, away from their homeland. And this captivity lasted for some 70 years, beginning with the reign of King Jehoiakim. This captivity was God's response to Israel's disobedience and idolatry, the rebellion against him, and the Babylonian captivity was said to be harsh and oppressive. Israel suffered greatly under the Babylonians. But in Isaiah 45, we can see that God has not forgotten his chosen people. Though Israel had forgotten God, God had not forgotten them. And he lays out before Israel this plan to rescue them from the cruelty of the Babylonians. And really in the second half of Isaiah from chapter 40 all the way to the end of the book, God is expressing comfort and hope to Israel that God would yet deliver his people. God had brought Israel to a place of humility and hardship because of their rebellion. But God does not forget his people. And he sends word through the prophets, like Isaiah, that he was prepared to deliver his people. And Cyrus is the instrument in the hand of God, chosen by God to deliver Israel from the cruelty of the Babylonian captivity. So the study of our text this morning is going to focus on the sovereignty of God as he executes his plan and purposes with the nations. And it's my hope that as we see God as he is, and that he has not changed concerning our present times in the world today, that it will give us comfort and hope as well. When we look at the turmoil of our world, we should remember that God is sovereign and what that means to us today. Beginning with the first three verses, God's sovereignty is proclaimed by God himself. God proclaims to Israel, I am very much in control. We observe through the first 13 verses and even beyond, God repeatedly declares, it is I who will act. I am doing this. I have taken. I will go. I will shatter. I will give. I am the Lord and there is no other. This is the repeated theme throughout the entire chapter. This is the strong theme of Isaiah 45. And you can see in the first three verses, as this chapter opens, God is telling Israel what he's about to do through a man named Cyrus. And then if you move to verse 3, he tells Israel, this is why I'm going to do all of this. This is why I'm acting through Cyrus. Verse 3, so that you will know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. Now again, God is 
theoretically speaking to Cyrus so that you, Cyrus, may know. But this prophecy is written to Israel, and therefore Israel is being reminded of God's throne. So God begins this part of the prophecy by declaring his, his sovereignty, his throne, his rulership to Israel. And he does not let up with that theme throughout the entire chapter. So God's people must understand that when nations are in turmoil, when chaos and trouble are upon God's people, God is still God. He is not absent. He is not unaware. He is not silent. He is not inactive. God is not only an active participant in the affairs of men, he is a ruling presence. And that's what Isaiah 45 communicates to God's people. And therefore, when we think of the sovereignty of God, we must think in terms of his hand actively involved in the affairs of the world, taking the hands of rulers and leaders and bringing them where he would have them go. Babylon was brought into the borders of Israel by God, by the sovereign power of his throne as a disciplinary action against them. And God would determine to set his people free once again through now a king called Cyrus. While the troubling times of our circumstances may be foremost in our minds today, and while these times are causing a great deal of concern within the medical community, they're causing panic even on the toilet paper aisle of the supermarkets. Governments are scrambling to maintain control. And even Christians sometimes are filled with fear and anxiety. The people of God should hear God say, it should echo in our ears, I am the Lord and there is no other. No, no one is going to take the place of God's rule or subvert his authority. Nothing is beyond his control. During a time of national crisis and despair for Israel, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to remind his people that he is still God. And this is the overwhelming theme of chapters 44, 45, and 46. And it is echoed throughout this passage that we're going to be studying this morning as we read here in verse 14. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. Israel's world was filled with trouble and their own personal troubles dominated their thoughts and their concerns. God comes to his people in the midst of this turmoil and he speaks prophetically to them, promising them that God will be God and there is no other. We observe also that the God who is sovereign over the affairs of men does not always conduct himself in the way that we might think prudent or reasonable. If God were to pause from his activities and to ask us, how do you think I should deliver Israel out from under the, the bondage of the Babylonians? We might suggest raise up a David or a Moses, a hero from Israel like Samson to deliver the people from this oppression of the Babylonians. Bring up a, an Abraham Lincoln and a nation like America to come in to deliver. That's how we might think. And yet when we witness the sovereignty of God on the pages of Scripture, He doesn't consult with men. He doesn't act in a way that sinful humanity will always understand, nor will they necessarily approve of. The sovereignty of God acts autonomously and independently from man's wisdom. 
So the rescue of Israel would not happen at the hands of a hero like David or Moses. God instead determined to raise up a pagan king named Cyrus. Now history records Cyrus as a noble and a just king. He was known for his mild and his kind administration over his people. One historian observed that all the ancient writers celebrate Cyrus's humanity and his benevolence. But he was also a masterful conquering soldier, leading Persia into the greatest position of power at that time. And our text tells us that this greatness in Cyrus, the greatness of his power and his dominion, was the leading of God himself. God had taken that king by the right hand and led him to victory. The gates of cities would not be shut on Cyrus. He would go in and capture those cities. He would take the treasures, the spoils of war for himself. And in chapter 44 and verse 28, God refers to Cyrus as his appointed shepherd over his people Israel. Cyrus, this pagan king, this Gentile king, would act as a shepherd to the flock of God. In chapter 45 and verse 1, he is the anointed that God had placed into that position. What this tells us is that God appointed this foreign king to be the one to deliver his people. God would take him by his hand, subdue the nations, cause kings to submit to Cyrus, including Babylon. God would go before Cyrus and would shatter the bars of captivity, giving victory and treasures of war to him as the conquering general. God would make Persia the mightiest nation of the time under Cyrus, all to set this little nation Israel free and bring them home again. Why? Why would God do this? It says so that God would be known. His sovereignty would be visible. It would be seen that he is the God of Israel, the God who called his people and chose them for his own. But in giving this prophecy to Israel, by extension, God is also not just declaring this to Cyrus. He is declaring this to Israel, that I am your God, and I will perform these wonders. I will do this through a man named Cyrus. And I believe this should remind us of God's sovereignty, as Solomon also wrote from Proverbs 21 and verse 1, where we read, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. This is what God did with Cyrus. He turns it. He turns the heart of the king wherever he wishes. And we can envision a winding river and the waters are following a course and the water of the river does not determine its own course. But rather the banks of the river will point the water where it should go. This is our God. This is the God of Israel taking the heart of Cyrus and doing with Cyrus what God pleased. And this is what God says to Israel. I take the right hand of this shepherd, this king that I have anointed, so that you will know that it is I, the Lord, who calls you by your name. You look at the circumstances of our world, our families, our lives, and we know that it is the one true God that reigns over the affairs of men. And because the Christian can trust God's power and character. We can live at ease with our circumstances, even the difficult circumstances, even the turmoil of our own day. 
Why? Because we know God. He is seated on a throne and God has declared himself, I am God. I lead rulers of nations. I accomplish my purpose. It is I and there is no other beside me. God has proclaimed himself. Second, as we move into verse 4 and 5, it is God's sovereignty's purpose that is also proclaimed here. God tells Israel through the prophet Isaiah, this is why I'm going to exercise my sovereign rule. It is for the sake of Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen people. And Cyrus was selected by God to rescue Israel from Babylonian captivity. And therefore, God is saying to Israel, I am doing this all for your good, for your sake, because you are my people, you belong to me. At the same time, we notice that twice here in the passage, God tells Israel, Cyrus doesn't even know me. Even though God called him by his name, and God gave Cyrus a title of honor, yet Cyrus did not know God. This means that God made Cyrus what he had become. The hand of God had sovereignly taken the hand of Cyrus and made him the powerful king that he was, and yet Cyrus was not a believer, not a worshiper of God. No doubt he had heard of God, but he had no devotion to God. And this is the man that God chose to liberate Israel and bring them back to their homeland. At the end of chapter 44, God used Cyrus, or will use Cyrus, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to restore the temple that had been torn down. And as we turn to the book of Ezra, it describes some of this restoration of the temple. And it moves into the, the reign of even King Darius and Nehemiah as they restore Jerusalem and its walls. This was all under Cyrus's domain. This is what Cyrus started, and it was because God enabled him to do it. It is God that took him by the hand and caused Jerusalem to be rebuilt, the people to be returned, and the temple to be restored. But I want us to notice in verse 4 and 5 the intensity of God's presence. God purposed to deliver his people after 70 years of oppression and bondage. And when it pleased God to act, he did. When it pleased God to move, he did. And how it pleased God to accomplish this purpose, that is what God would do. And his purpose is clear. He ruled over the nations for the sake of his chosen people, Jacob, my servant. So God calls Cyrus to the task. He gives Cyrus a title of honor. And then notice verse 5, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, speaking of Cyrus, though you have not known me. These two verses are strongly emphasized that God alone had accomplished his purposes. Babylon was a powerful nation and God used them for a season. He then cast that nation aside because he alone is God. Cyrus was raised up by God to subdue the nations, but even his power was under the sovereign rule of the Lord. And you can bet that Cyrus did not understand all of this because he didn't know God. And unless God had given to Israel this prophecy, they would not have known his purposes either. And you can imagine before this prophecy was given, 
what those circumstances would have looked like to Israel. They were slaves to Babylon, and they were a cruel taskmaster to Israel. For 70 years, they endured that cruelty and hardship. And then comes Persia to overthrow Babylon and to release Israel. But Israel then becomes a people under the authority and rule of Persia. Do you think Israel was thinking at that time that God was acting for their sake? This prophecy was given in the midst of Israel's turmoil and given that they would know God is who he is. Very often there's a great mystery to us on how God and when God will work. We don't always know the means that he will use to accomplish his purposes. And we don't always know know his purposes until his word identifies it for us as it did here to Israel in Isaiah 45. But this much we are to know in light of verse 4 and 5. God is fully in control. And the God that determines good for us will accomplish exactly that. He was telling Israel, I am going to do this for your sake. And then God did that very thing. We may not always know how God will work things out. And there will be times when we may be tempted to think, that evil men are in control and all hope is lost because chaos and turmoil seem to be having their way. But Paul reminds the church in Rome of this very same truth that Isaiah is communicating to the people of Israel. In in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we read these words familiar to us and are words that we also should know. As Israel was to know God, Paul says to the church, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And this is the message behind the prophecy of Isaiah 45. God was acting for the sake of the people, people that he had called for his purpose. And the important part that we don't want to miss in all of this is that God causes all things to work together for good, for his people, the ones that he has called, the ones that he has chosen. He does not lose control even for one moment. He does not surrender his purposes to one single ruler. He is never thwarted by any legislative action of men or even a virus. How important are these words to us today? I am the Lord. There is no other Beside me, there is no God. As we look at the trouble in our world and in our nation, or even in our own personal lives, we are to be reminded that God is sovereign still, and God purposes to work good for his people. He promises to work good in his people. He will take all things, things that we may think are troubling to us, he will work them out for good. This is the purpose of God. For his chosen people. And third, as we move into verse 6, 7, and 8, we also see the sovereignty of God practiced. And this view may be somewhat troubling to some of us. It is how God practices his sovereign rule over the affairs of men. And I think it is important to see at the very outset of this that God, in verse 6, is not at all ashamed to have men and women know him in this way. That men may know, it says, from the rising to the setting of the sun, 
that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. From the rising and setting of the sun, God is saying from east to west that the whole world will know this is who I am. This is how I work. This is what I accomplish. These are my purposes. God is not at all ashamed of who he is or how he works. And so the idea behind the rising and the setting of the sun seems to be that all men across the world, east to west, will know that there is only one God when they witness his sovereign power and his authority. Now this is not to suggest that every single person on the face of the earth will know. Because even scripture says here, Cyrus did not know God. Rather, it is telling us that all peoples throughout the world will know God. They will know what he's doing. Even today, because of Calvary, men and women from every nation, every people group, every tongue and tribe will come to know God as gospel is preached. We learn here that while God's ways can be mysterious to us, he does not work invisibly. He works so as to be seen. He wants to be known. Israel came under the blessing of God, but God had determined from the very beginning to bless all the nations of the earth, as he said to Abraham, through Abraham's seed, who is Messiah. God is telling Israel at this point that he has much bigger plans than just to bless one small nation. His eternal grace would come through Israel to be sure, but it would extend to men and women from all nations. Again, not everybody on the planet will know of God. But the knowledge of God will be spread throughout all the world. And what may be puzzling to some is that God's worldwide testimony will be seen in how he practices his sovereignty. Verse 7, he is the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. Now, the reference to light and dark is difficult to discern. Oftentimes in Scripture, light and dark is used to symbolize goodness or evil, righteousness or wickedness. But we know that God does not form evil, so that cannot be God's meaning here. It might be that light and dark is indicating day and night, which might suggest that God is sovereign over the 24-hour day cycle which would be true, but I do not think that that is the meaning here either. Most likely, the forming of light and darkness is Hebrew parallelism to the causing of well-being and creating calamity. And in that sense, light and dark could be that God is behind both the good times and the bad times. And if that is too subtle for us to understand about God's practicing of his sovereignty, there can be no mistaking God's declaration that he causes well-being as well as creating calamity. And this, again, may be troubling for some. For God to practice his sovereignty in this way may be hard for some people to accept. But again, I'm struck with the fact that God is not at all ashamed to say it of himself. God is not shy about it. He doesn't get embarrassed about speaking of himself this way. He proclaims it so the whole world will know that he is God from east to west. He puts his practice on display for the whole world to see so that from east to west, all that may know that he alone is God. 
One thing that is likely evident to most of us when we experience these global or national events that are considered something of a tragedy, very often the discussions will come up from the secular world about how a good God can allow such bad things to happen. And the assumption behind that kind of questioning is that man somehow deserves better from God. That is, if there is a God, and if he is indeed good. The unregenerate man is not likely to understand that what all of us deserve from God is his perfect justice, which on account of our sins will require his divine judgment, eternal damnation. We are a fallen race in bondage to our own sins. And only God's grace can rescue us from our sin. When God sovereignly deals with humanity, he is not at all unjust to cause well-being or create calamity. Because what we all deserve from him is eternal death. John Calvin wrote these words, and you will find them on the note sheet, page 2 at the very bottom. He wrote, what we must constantly keep in mind is that all afflictions are God's rod, and therefore there is no remedy for, for them other than God's grace. Whatever is broken, whatever is hurtful, whatever is diseased or destructive, whatever is threatening, whatever even causes death is in some way connected with the fallen state of humanity and the curse that is upon us because of that sin. God uses the broken and painful to deal with men and women in a way that they deserve. And the only way we escape pain in this life is where God moves to give us what we do not deserve, what is called grace. And as believers, we've come under the divine blessing of God's gracious protection in Christ Jesus and based on his atoning sacrifice on the cross. But those of us that are believers would join with David in the song that he wrote that John read to us at the beginning of our service. And I quote again from Psalm 103, verses 8 through 11. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This again is a description of God's sovereign throne. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He's not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As believers in Christ Jesus, we have come under this protection of the cross. By faith, we enter into a loving relationship with God, such that we don't get from him what our sins have earned us. Instead, we get grace. That being said, even unbelievers experience something of this grace from God. Because all people are allowed at least a season of life. They're allowed to live in this world. And the reign of heaven falls on the unjust as well as the just, as Scripture says. So even unbelievers are touched by God's common grace. But even believers today also will experience the sovereign work of God's hand as he practices both well-being and calamity on the earth. Now, we don't mind the sound of God practicing well-being in life. It's calamitous and dark things that we struggle with. 
But even our faith, which is precious to us, is made stronger through the fires of calamity. And so God will bring his own people through those calamitous times. And like Israel, when we as God's children become stubborn in our sins, the rod of God's righteousness may discipline us for our good. We may experience God's rod as he deals with the sins of others or as he deals with the wicked culture around us. And we have to be mindful that not Israel, taken captive into Babylon, not all of Israel were rebels. There was always the remnant of God that followed in fear and love to God. But even they experienced the oppression of Babylon. And as I look at what is happening today in our worldwide viral infection, I immediately see God practicing his sovereignty over the earth. I don't always know his reasons or what he's going to accomplish through this virus, but I know his hand is in it and he's entirely righteous to do what he's doing. God may not be afflicting you or I in this virus directly. He may be accomplishing another purpose altogether. Yet he will nonetheless work his good in us through this affliction as we respond to him in faith. And this is not to say that God creates evil because he does not. Or that he's responsible for Babylon's wicked oppression. But God sovereignly uses these things for his good purposes and will create calamity by them. This is what God is telling Israel. Light and dark, well-being and calamity. It is I, the Lord, who does all these things. And God is not ashamed to say so. And then verse 8 wonderfully follows, showing God dripping down from heaven his righteousness, raining his goodness on his people. Let the earth, and o- earth open up and receive it, and his salvation will bear fruit, and righteousness will spring up. I, the Lord, have created it. It's reminding Israel that though they experience this dark time and though Cyrus will come in and set them free, they're about to receive the righteousness of God. He has used the calamity, he's used the darkness to create something good. And this brings us to another portion of God's sovereignty. And this isn't necessarily an expression of God himself in verse 9 and 10 but rather God's sovereignty is protested by men. And God identifies the protest or the grumbling of Israel in verse 9 and 10 as two different woes. God is confronting them from the perspective first of a creator towards his creation. Verse 9, woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. And he likens Israel to an earthenware vessel pile of clay that God would be forming. Now, in this text, the specific protest is not identified in these verses. It may have been that Israel felt God was moving too slowly, leaving them under the tyranny of Babylon for 70 years. That's a long time. Maybe they felt God was unjust in putting them there in the first place. Perhaps they were grumbling, as so often people do today, where is God in all of this? Or is he good to make us suffer so? Perhaps they had not yet considered their sinful rebellion and saw themselves as undeserving of this treatment. Or that God had gone back on his word somehow 
when he promised to make Israel nation under his blessing. The specific complaint is not named here. But then again, this, the specific complaint is not really that important. What is important is that anyone would bring a complaint against God as their maker, their creator. This is the point that God addresses here with Israel. After Israel had grumbled and protested God's sovereign care over his people, God confronted them with a first woe. Will the clay question the potter as to what he's doing? And the implication from their grumbling in verse 9 is that God was not doing anything for them. At the end of the verse, it says there are no hands being involved. It's almost like God had taken that pile of clay, dropped it on the potter's wheel, and that let it do its own thing. Because Israel is saying, you're not doing anything for us. You're not helping us. Your hands are not blessing us. We're stuck in this oppression under Babylon. So we can kind of see something of the essence of Israel's grumbling and complaining against God. But God's response to their grumbling was to pronounce a condemnation to any who would think that they can bring a charge against the maker, the creator himself. And then in verse 10, the second woe, a condemnation in a familial sense. As a child complaining to his parents, what are you doing creating children? What do you think you're going to accomplish here? And the implication that God gives in verse 10 is that he is the father and Israel is his child. And the child is complaining, why have you made me like this? Why are you making us like this? What are you doing by giving birth? What are you hoping to beget here? It is a charge against God's graciousness and love to make his own spiritual children, to make Israel his own people. Paul, the apostle, made use of this same passage in the book of Romans as the Roman church was beginning to protest the doctrine of election. And perhaps those Christians did not appreciate the idea that somehow they were not free to choose their own belief in Christ. Perhaps they didn't like the idea that they were hearing from Paul that God would show mercy to some but not to others. But after articulating the debate back and forth from his position, Paul's position to theirs, Paul resorted to this theological declaration taken right out of Isaiah 45 that God has a right to do as he pleases with his mercy and with his sovereign dealings with the hearts of men. He questioned the Romans with the same argument Paul did. Who are you to answer back to God? Is the clay going to say to the potter, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have a right over the clay? And within man's protesting of God's sovereignty, another characteristic of God's throne is highlighted for us here in Isaiah 45, verse 9 and 10. God is the maker, and he has full rights over that which he has made. God is the creator. He has full rights to do with his creation as he see fit. And no man is qualified to question his goodness or sovereign care since every man is a fallen sinner, and God remains righteous. People today will protest the idea of a good God in the face of bad times. Even Christians will make the mistake of questioning God's rule, His providence. To see our world in turmoil is to be reminded that the Creator has a right to do with His creation what He sees fit. Fallen man is not qualified to question God's character or His work. And this brings us to our fifth and final point this morning in our text, 
from verse 11 to verse 13. It is God's sovereignty proved. And this is where we consider from our passage before us that God is declaring his sovereignty. And then he says, look at what I've created. God gives proof to his sovereign care over Israel by showing us all the work of his hands. God reminds his readers of his creative power and genius when he made the world, the heavens, and all the hosts of the universe. This again is an argument that Paul made in Romans chapter 1, which tells us that God made himself known by what he created so that men should know his truth. And then in Romans 1, in verse 20, Paul says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, man has only to look at what God has created and it should answer the question, who has a right to rule this universe? This is what God is declaring to Israel here in verses 11, 12, and 13 of Isaiah 45. This presentation of the work of God's hand not only addresses the complaints and the questions of his people, but it gives proof to the unsaved world of his power and his authority over the nations. God has a right to rule the universe since he is the maker of it. He has the authority to put men in power, to remove them at his pleasure, since all men are a work of his creation. And for those who would grumble against his sovereign rule, like Israel did, they're to be reminded that God made them what they were. It appears that verse 11 is a challenge to grumbling Israel. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me about the things to come concerning my son. And you shall commit to me the work of my hands. It is I who made the earth. I created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands. And I ordained all their hosts. This is answering Israel's concern. It's answering their, their question. They're grumbling against God. And it's telling the people, if you would look at what I have created, if you would look at my creation and how I ordain the paths of the stars and the moons and the planets, I keep everything and hold it together on its prescribed path, you're not going to have any under, trouble understanding that I rule over the nations. I rule over kings and peoples. I determine their course. How often do we see in God's word that his work, his creation, his char character is validated by his creation. God created all. He ordained how his universe would function. His sovereignty is proven by the work of his hands in creation. Is it any wonder that God ordains the course of men and kings and nations? Cyrus did not know God and perhaps was not fully aware of how he was being used by the Lord to accomplish good for Israel. But God is telling Israel that they should know because they do know God. They know him as their creator. And having been reminded of the work of God's hand in creation, Israel is assured that Cyrus is now the work of God's hand for their good. And you see that in verse 13 as God says, I have aroused him, Cyrus, in righteousness. I'm doing a good thing for you. I'm going to make his ways smooth. He will build my city, Jerusalem. He will let my exiles go free. Israel is going to see freedom again. 
And then you will notice he says, without any payment or reward, says the Lord of hosts. God is saying, Cyrus is going to set you free. He's going to build Jerusalem. The temple will be reestablished. And he's not even going to charge you for this service. It's going to cost you nothing. Why? Because this is a work of God's sovereignty. It isn't even Cyrus doing all of this. This is God's gracious work that he purposed to do for the sake of his people Israel. What passages like Isaiah 45 do for believers today is that when we see a worldwide event take place, we can know that God is still seated on his throne. And not only that, God is actively involved in these events to accomplish his purposes for his glory and for the good of his chosen people. And if we can remember these kinds of passages when major events strike, like viruses or natural disasters or wars or any other events, then we can be assured that God will also be active in the smaller events that affect our individual families or affect us personally as believers. And where God is seated on the throne of his sovereign rule, he will always fulfill his good purposes for his glory and for his people. So rather than ending our time this morning in the study of God's word with a few summary statements, I've chosen to end with three questions that I want to offer to us that we might meditate on in regard to our knowledge of God's sovereignty. Is God strong enough? Is God good enough? Is he capable enough? So it's good for us to go away this morning giving thought to what we believe about what the word of God has said of God. The five points that I presented this morning, in my opinion, are strong enough by themselves. So it should ask us questions that I want to leave you with this morning. And with that in mind, I want to commend to you that this week, maybe you take the time to read Isaiah 44, 45, and 46, asking ourselves these questions. Number one, do I know God for who he is? Do I know his power, his unlimited rule over the universe and the affairs of man? Do I know his righteousness that rains down upon us from heaven? Do I know of his goodness, his love for his chosen people? Do I know his son, Jesus Christ? Those of us that are believers listening this morning, you do know God to some degree. But do we know him well enough? There are passages like this that remind us of the sovereignty of God such that we can have great confidence in this life. And this brings me to the second question. Do I know what God does? I may not be able to know all that God does, but I know what God tells me he does in his word. I know what God promises me in his word. Like passages in Romans 8.28 that tell me God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. I know then what God does in that sense. Do we know what God does? Can we see what he does to keep his universe on course? Do, do we know what he declares that he will do yet for the church in his word? It is good for us to know what God does and how he works. And third, knowing who God is and knowing what it does. Do I trust God? with all of my circumstances, knowing God and what he does, do I trust my circumstances under his sovereign rule? 
Do I live confidently in his care while experiencing turmoil in this life? Does my trust in God lead me to praise and to worship him in the midst of darkness and calamity? Because I know he is sovereign. I know who he is. And I know what he does. This would be our prayer for us as a church, that we would know God in this way. We would take great comfort in his sovereignty, in his rule, in his benevolence, his love, and the righteousness that he always rains down upon his people. That he works all things, even viruses, for the good of his people. Do we have that kind of confidence in him this morning? Let's pray together as we close. Our God in heaven, we thank you that you are in control and no other. Because we know you to be good and righteous. We know of your justice and your power and your authority. We know the promises you make to your chosen people. How you work good and you bring about righteousness in all things. And Father, as we learn of you in this way, would you build in us a greater trust and confidence, a greater satisfaction in you, so that even the storms and the turbulence of life do not knock us off course. We are at peace. We are at ease with our circumstances because of who you are. We need that kind of stability, Father. And because we come to know you and your ways in this way, Father, let it cause us to worship you and to praise you and give thanks to you all the more as your people in Christ Jesus. And we pray this together in his name. Amen.